everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in a chronological order of publication. And this week, I examine 1983's truly horrific novel, Pet Cemetery. Um, so for those of you who are first tuning into the Stephen King cast, welcome. Um, in earlier episodes, I have referred to Stephen King as a very optimistic writer, one who writes, uh, you know, some horrific things, but despite the horrors in his novel and, you know, in, uh, in the face of the horrors of his novel, um, the, the good guys usually win the day, um, and it's a celebration of all of the, the best aspects of humanity. That's not necessarily on display here in Pet Cemetery. Pet Cemetery is, I'm not going to call it a pessimistic look. I mean, it doesn't speak about the ills of humanity. It's simply that it's just, it, it, it's a dark book. Um, and it, it, I know that it's anecdotally one that has turned off a lot of people that I know. And I can see why. It, it's not a very pleasant read. It's thrilling. It's vivid in its imagery. Um, he has really good characters in this one. Um, a, a lot of memorable scenes. But the concept itself is it's difficult to handle because it really hits close to home. I mean, because King... He's going to explore mortality in many of his novels. Bag of Bones, Insomnia, Lisey's Story from Buick 8, and most recently, Revival. But those novels come later, uh, and and most of them come after his accident, um, his own personal touch of death, you know, which naturally caused his mind to turn to thoughts of a finite lifespan. Now, Pet Cemetery, however, is an exploration of death from a younger author. You know, however, not one as young as he once was. By the time of publication of Pet Cemetery, King is 36 years old, the same age as Lewis Creed, the main character. Naomi is 13, Joe is 11, Owen is 6. Between his own aging, which might seem to speed all the much faster with his children growing before his eyes, it's natural to start to muse on the concept of life as a finite existence. After all, we can't stay 19 forever, and for King, whose life at 19 was once um, one of, of limitless possibilities, now finds himself 17 years older, a husband, a father, a man who has found his profession. The fight is over. He doesn't have to build the machine anymore. He just needs to make sure that it keeps running, knowing that one day that machine is going to stop, and no amount of tinkering, cleaning, or preventative maintenance can stop that from happening. Make no mistake. Uh, this is a novel completely about death. So his, his novels are always about something, right? Um, Carrie isn't necessarily a novel about telekinetic abilities. It's really about a statement about the worst aspects of ourselves and how it manifests itself in a form of bullying. Salem's Lot, on the surface, is a novel about vampires invading a small town, but he's making a statement about the larger world encroaching upon the cultures of small towns, um, the Shining is a story of abuse, of substance abuse, of physical abuse, of emotional abuse, and it, it's an exploration of the family unit and what happens when one member of that family unit turns inward and breaks away from the family. So his novels are always about something, and Pet Cemetery is no different. It's just that Pet Cemetery happens to be, um, his first novel to really dive deep into what death is. It saturates this novel. 
it's on every page. The move to Ludlow, for instance, for the main characters, it should be a celebration of life. Instead, it's akin to moving into hospice. There's a slow tick until life is ripped away from this family. Their idyllic house is defined by its proximity to a pet cemetery. Not just a cemetery, but one created by children. Even with the title of the novel, it makes the connection between death and children, from the name of the cemetery for deceased children's pets, along with the innocent misspelling of the name. Judd Crandall is the first person Creed meets, someone not in the early stages of his life, but instead closer to death. Lewis receives premonitions of death, the arrival to the house, uh, house causes his daughter to begin to contemplate its meaning. It stirs up memories of Rachel's sister, who both in life and in her memory was defined by in, uh, existing in a constant state of death. Lewis is even hesitant to get church neutered because to him it symbolizes the death of masculinity and replaces it with complacency for living out the rest of his days rather than living up the rest of his days. It's no coincidence that the setting involves the fall, the time of year in which the world begins dying. It will move through the seasons later on, but fall features prominently in the earlier parts of the novel. Lewis' first um, patient on his first day at the infirmary involves his failure to save a young man whose ghost begins to haunt him. And ultimately, not only does Gage die, but so does every aspect of life that Lewis has ever known. It's no coincidence that when Church dies, the event that spurs the rest of the novel into action. It happens on Thanksgiving, a family holiday, and the fact that when he dies, Lewis is separated from his wife and children, and this foreshadows the literal death of the family as well as the symbolic death of the family as a concept. In the pages of this novel, death is a nearly sentient creature, a celestial feline predator toying with its prey before going in for the kill. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to get into the Wikipedia summary so that I have a foundation upon which I can build the rest of my analysis. And I apologize. <clears throat> I just ate a pound of boneless wings. I probably didn't need to eat all of the wings, but I did. I did it. Um, so if I slip into a food coma halfway through this podcast and there's just dead air, that's why. Um, oof. So anyway... Wikipedia summary. Lewis Creed, a doctor from Chicago, is appointed director of the University of Maine's Campus Health Service. He moves to a large house near the small town of Ludlow with his wife Rachel, their two young children Ellie and Gage, and Ellie's cat Church. From the moment they arrive, the family runs into trouble. Ellie hurts her knee after falling off a swing, and Gage is stung by a bee. Luckily, their new neighbor, an elderly man named Judd Crandall, comes to help. He warns Lewis and Rachel about the highway that runs past their house. It is constantly used by big trucks. Judd and Lewis quickly become close friends. Since Lewis's real father died when he was three, he sees Judd as a surrogate father. A few weeks after the Creeds move in, Judd puts a friendship on the line when he takes the family on a walk in the woods behind their home. A well-tended path leads to a pet cemetery, misspelled, where the children of the town bury their deceased animals. This provokes a heated argument between Lewis and Rachel the next day. Rachel disapproves of discussing death, and she worries about how Ellie may be affected by what she saw at the cemetery. It's later explained that Rachel was traumatized by the early death of her sister Zelda from spinal meningitis, an issue, an issue which is brought up several times in flashbacks. Lewis himself has a traumatic experience during the first week of classes when Victor Pascal, 
a student who has been fatally injured in an automobile accident, addresses his dying words to Lewis personally, even though the two men are strangers. On the night following Pascal's death, Lewis experiences what he believes is a very vivid dream in which he meets Pascal, who leads him to the cemetery and warns Lewis not to go beyond, no matter how much you feel you need to. Lewis wakes up in bed the next morning, convinced it was, in fact, a dream, until he finds his feet and the bedsheets covered with dirt and pine needles. Nevertheless, Lewis dismisses the dream as the product of the stress he experienced during Pascal's death, coupled with his wife's lingering anxieties about the subject of death. Lewis is forced to confront the subject of death at Halloween, when Judd's wife, Norma, suffers a near-fatal heart attack. Thanks to Lewis's prompt attention, Norma makes a quick recovery. Judd is grateful for Lewis's help and decides to repay him after church is run over outside his home at Thanksgiving. Rachel and the kids are visiting Rachel's parents in Chicago, but Lewis frets over breaking the bad news to Ellie. Sympathizing with Lewis, Judd takes him to the pet cemetery, supposedly to bury church. But instead of stopping there, Judd leads Lewis further on a frightening journey to the real cemetery, an ancient burial ground that was once used by the Mi'kmaq Indians. There, Lewis buries the cat on Judd's instruction, with Judd saying that animals buried there have come back to life. Not really believing, Lewis thinks that the subject is finished, until the next afternoon when the cat returns home. But it's obvious that church is not the same as before. While he used to be vibrant and lively, he now acts ornery and a little dead, in Lewis's words. Church hunts for mice and birds much more often, but he rips them apart without eating them. The cat also smells so bad that Ellie no longer wants him in her room at night. Judd confirms that this condition is the rule rather than the exception for animals who have been resurrected in this fashion. Lewis is deeply disturbed by Church's resurrection and begins to wish that he had never done it. Tragically, Gage is run over by a speeding truck several months later, even though Lewis very nearly manages to prevent the accident. Overcome with despair, Lewis considers bringing his son back to life with the help of the burial ground. Judd, guessing what Lewis is planning, attempts to dissuade him by telling him the gruesome story of the last person who was resurrected by the burial ground. Judd concludes that the place has a power, and this power caused Gage's death because Judd introduced Lewis to it. Despite this and his own reservation about his idea, Lewis's grief and guilt spur him to carry out his plan with horrifying consequences for him and his loved ones. Gage returns from the dead as a monstrous demonic shadow of his former self, and first kills Judd with one of Lewis's surgical scalpels, then his mother as well. Lewis confronts his son and sends him back to the grave with a lethal injection of chemicals from his medical supply stock. We learn, however, that he has still not learned from his mistakes, for after burning the Crandall house down, he returns to the burial ground with his wife's corpse. That very night, Lewis is playing solitaire when he feels a cold hand fall upon his shoulder and hears the voice of Rachel cooing, darling. So there's three parts to this novel. There's uh, part one, The Pet Cemetery, part two, The Micmac Burial Ground, and part three, Oz the Great and Tailable. So I'm just going to talk about it um, in, in the three parts, and then I'll get into the, the, the quote, um, which I believe the best uh, uh, bit of text is that, that just summarizes the novel. I'll get into the Stephen King-isms, and, and then, then we'll be good. So part one, The Pet Cemetery. Now look, as King's openings go, it's deceivingly involved. 
The meandering syntax, complete with repetition and an ellipses, creates um, the sensation of an easy breezy small town main lifestyle. Furthermore, by introducing the text with Lewis, the subject of the sentence, and concluding that paragraph with the subject being Church the Cat, King creates a symmetry with Lewis on one end, representing life, as evidenced by the discovery, or resurrection, if you will, of a father figure after his own had died. Already, with three sentences, King has already foreshadowed the events of the novel, which involves the resurrection of family members. If the text begins with Lewis, and Lewis represents life with a family, a house, and a new father figure, then church, whose descriptions come in simple declarative sentences, represents death. As the reader makes his or her way through the paragraph, they move from the sprawling, rambling first sentence, which physically takes up the majority of the paragraph, and after it, the sentences grow shorter and shorter until the final sentence, um, which is simply expository, free of any literary devices or connotation. Life is working its way until death. And that's uh, shown through the syntax itself. These four sentences are also loaded with information. We are given the name of our main character, insight into his childhood, his current family situation, the fact that they've just moved, the name of one of his children, and the name of his child's cat. I mean, it's impressive, I mean, to, to be able to play around so, um, so literary in one sense, with the, the, the syntax representing what the novel's all about, while at the same time just being able to tell a story and, and delivering information that doesn't pound us over the head and it feels natural, but it, there's so much information there for us to to uh, to, to grasp and, and move on. And, you know, this is a... As Stephen King stories go, as I've said before in the podcast, Stephen King is known for his giant works. And the paperback edition that, that I read um, clocks in at 411 pages. And there is never a down moment in this novel. There's never really a scene that I think, oh, that could have been cut. Everything works. And, you know, he, he really sets a pace for himself in, in the first four sentences. And the following two pages were given enough information to sink our teeth into the story. Lewis is a university doctor. He's moving his family to an old house surrounded by forests that were once the home of an Indian tribe and has a family so sweet, his son's first word is home. It's so precious, a little too precious, honestly. <laughs> uh, it's like that scene from The Simpsons uh, with McBain's partner talking about his new boat, which he's named the Live Forever, just before he's murdered. But with the case of Pet Cemetery, it's it's necessary. We have to see the life of these characters when they're uh, full of just that life, before we start seeing the death creep in. King even comments on it, acknowledging how cute it is. In his words, it's magical because Lewis will later hold on to it, especially with everything that comes later. Now, immediately, things take a turn. As soon as they're in the country, it's not a surprise that things get a bit wild, with an overdramatic Elaine um, screaming about a cut and Gage crying about a bee sting. But everything's alleviated with the sudden arrival of their new neighbor, Judd Crandall, who holds the distinction as being the most mainish character King has ever put on paper. Now, he's toyed with the main dialect before, but with Judd, the dam breaks and the pure waters of rural Maine life pour in. And small-town Maine is personified with every slow drawl, bit of blue-collar wisdom, and every utterance of eye up. Lewis warms to him right away, and I'll speak on behalf of us all. So does the reader. Now, there's just something 
about some characters. Even when not explicitly stated, they're, they're still shaded with enough to feel fully realized, having lived a life before walking into the pages of a book. Judd is such a character. Now, I don't know why some characters crackle, while others, the, the Ben Mearses of the world, don't. It's part of that magical quality of writing, I suppose, where the, the, the pen scribbles independently of the hand that holds it, guided by a force, maybe the, the force of the character whose essence is so rich it demands that its story be told. Now, Lewis is not one of those characters. He's serviceable, and he's a well-written character, but he's also just kind of there in many ways. He's our vehicle—sorry, oh, I'm telling you, the wings. The wings. Uh, he's our vehicle, the, the cart in which we'll sit as King takes us on a tour of terror. He has to have enough traits to make him stand on his own two legs, but he has to be bland enough for the reader, especially the father's reading, to be able to place their own personalities upon him to make those tragedies that much more personal. You know, Lewis is not as much a, a character as much as he is a vessel in which we will hide behind whose eyes we will peer. His emptiness is only made that much more apparent with the inclusion of Judd, who seems to be so three-dimensional, fully realized, and tangible. He radiates in a way that Lewis never could, and I doubt that Pet Cemetery would be as successful as it is if Judd wasn't in it. Now by page 20, which is really only eight pages of text, King establishes the relationship between Judd and the Creeds, provides a warning about the trucks between the houses, and introduces a mysterious little path that leads into the woods. As I've stated in previous podcasts, King is a master at introducing small mysteries that build out of the story organically, ones that possess the reader to turn the page after page. By this point, we don't need supernatural occurrences to keep going. On one hand, I just want to see how these out-of-towners are going to interact with the kindly uh, elderly neighbor. Furthermore, I, I want to keep reading to find out about that little path that goes into the woods. Where does it go? What is the story to which Judd had alluded? And the trucks? Why would Stephen King reference the trucks as a warning if it wasn't going to come into play later? After moving, Lewis takes Judd up on his offer and stops by the man's house for a beer, and King eases us into the relationship between the two, not by revealing how they have some thing in secret in common or, or by forced dialogue, right? Instead, King stresses the ease between the two by providing a heavy silence between them which is something that I rarely see in fiction. He writes, The silence was a comfortable one, as if they had known each other for a long time. This was a feeling about which Lewis has read in books, but which he had never experienced until now. Now, silence is such a, a, a frightening thing for some people, you know, and, and some people are unable to deal with it completely. You know, many people, my wife included, can't fall asleep without the television on. You know, many people will sit by the campfire with music playing so that when a, a conversation winds down, something will fill the silence. But with these two characters, they aren't afraid of silence. And they're comfortable around each other while surrounded by the silence. And this relationship between the self and the silence is something they share. Individual inner reflections together. And this is what begins to draw them towards each other. As Judd and Lewis begin their conversation... Judd naturally explains the path behind the house as a friendly warning to the dangers of the road. The path leads to a pet cemetery, which was built as a result of the heavy traffic of the trucks that ran through the road. The information comes so naturally that you barely even notice that Judd even references the events of Cujo, as you would if you heard about a, um, you know, tangential story about some related topic in the newspaper. 
Now, Ellie's first day of kindergarten brings about the confirmation of mortality within the parents, and Lewis is rocked with a premonition of terror and dread. In fact, it hits him so hard he immediately thinks it's a supernatural occurrence rather than some rational sensation triggered by these thoughts of aging. Symbolically, of course, the two are related. Within the text, however, they're, they're two disparate events, and what he doesn't know is that the premonition of death isn't his own, as suggested by the previous musings on mortality, but his son's. It's a moment in which Lewis, an agent of order, is touched by the, the hand of chaos, in this case a sensation that he cannot rationalize. Immediately after, King reinforces his symbolic position as the agent of order by revealing to us he is a man whose hobby is to build model cars, a pastime about putting things together, making sense of things. A model car is simply a pile of unrelated parts. It needs the guiding hand of order to take those parts and turn them into something that makes sense. Keep in mind that the death of his son is the symbolic smashing of his model car, the realization that there's nothing orderly to life. There isn't some invisible hand putting the parts together. Order and chaos will be explored much more explicitly with the novel Insomnia, as we learn that there are active cosmic forces representing each concept, at constant war with each other, each needing human avatars to wage that war in our everyday existence. With that in mind, we can apply that knowledge to this book and see that this is exactly what's happening here, the sentient force of order clashing against chaos. It's the pet cemetery guarded by the Wendigo against Lewis Creed, the everyman, a husband and father, doctor, a man of logic, nature, and order. He's a self-described, hard-headed realist, even in his dreams. He makes for a perfect target. Chaos visits the Creed household as Ellie's visit to the pet cemetery unlocks feelings that she didn't know she had, which manifests on page 51. And I can't find my book because my dogs are sitting on it. Page 51. He held her and rocked her, believing, rightly or wrongly, that Ellie wept for the very intractability of death, its imperviousness to argument or to little girl's tears, that she wept over its cruel unpredictability, and that she wept because of the human being's wonderful, deadly ability to translate symbols into conclusions that were either fine and noble or blackly terrifying. If all those animals had died and had been buried, then church could die and be buried. And if that could happen to church, it could happen to her mother, her father, her baby brother, to herself. Death was a vague idea. The pet cemetery was real. And the texture of those rude markers were truths, which even a child's hand could feel. While this may be King's first uh, dissertation on death, it doesn't mean that he's not going to provide insight on other topics. You know, in Christine, uh, which was a novel so much about uh, growing up, um, you know, I mean, he was a fountain of observations about stepping into childhood, um, the fears of parents towards their children, and the loss of friendships. Here, he takes a moment to dwell on the nature of marriage, a topic he's explored before in The Shining, and will, throughout a number of his books, including Insomnia, Gerald's Game, A Good Marriage, and most poignantly, um, Lisey's Story. But here is where he really puts a marriage front and center like a statue so that his audience can gaze at and marvel at all of its beauty and imperfections. On page 53, he writes, Lewis stared at her nonplussed. He more than half suspected 
that one of the things which had kept their marriage together when it seemed as if each year brought the news that two or three of their friends' marriages had collapsed was their respect of the mystery, the half-grasped but never-spoken idea that maybe, when you got right down to the place where the cheese binds, there was no such thing as marriage, no such thing as union, that each soul stood alone and ultimately defied rationality. That was the mystery, and no matter how well you thought you knew your partner, you occasionally ran into blank walls or fell into pits, and sometimes, rarely, thank God, you ran into a full-fledged pocket of alien strangeness, something like the clear air turbulence that can buffet an airliner for no reason at all, an attitude or belief which you had never suspected, one so peculiar, at least to you, that it seemed nearly psychotic, and then you tread lightly. If you valued your marriage and your peace of mind, you tried to remember that anger at such a discovery was the province of fools who really believed it was possible for one mind to know another. It's an incredible scene that provides the philosophical difference between the two of them. You know, the, the wounded victim of death gone horribly wrong and the doctor who understands the natural order of things. Now, as I stated earlier, death lingers on every page and threatens to smash his rational and orderly life. What Lewis doesn't realize is that, yes, while logical, his approach to the subject is to ignore the emotional core of the concept itself, and for Rachel, who sees death as a painful, horrible thing, is clearly right to want to protect her children from it. King balances the two viewpoints nicely, siding with neither character, allowing the reader to determine whose argument is just. The issue is that it's like many cases in life, both are right. And it's not the fact that both are right that's the issue, it's the fact that neither can acknowledge that the other has a point that makes them both wrong at that moment. Furthermore, this scene once again underscores the relationship between order and chaos, Lewis representing the level-headed rationality to death and Rachel representing the chaotic emotion that comes as a result of it. <laughs> and as first days of work go, Lewis should win some award because boy, it's a doozy. With the death of Victor, King throws the novel in gear and revs the engine, reminding us that yeah, we are reading a horror novel. By this, I don't mean gore, although with this scene I'd argue that he presents probably his most graphic description to date. I mean, the terror and the suspense that builds within that scene is effective. Uh, for instance, the, the manner in which King reveals the injured Victor is perfect. Rather than having Lewis react to the body, he reacts to the other's reactions. When he steps into the room, he is disoriented, and so are we. He registers blood and the candy stripers screaming in horror. It's a scene of chaos, and by creating this chaos, we are reminded of Lewis's model car hobby, and that is his existence in life to provide a balance to that chaos. Chaos struck out and killed this young man. It's up to Lewis to make sense of it. Recognizing that Lewis represents a force of order, Victor, possessed by otherworldly intelligence, reaches out to warn Lewis of the impending danger. He then approaches Lewis at night in our first full-on supernatural scene appearing on page 83. King is turning it up, and it's not even page 100 yet. The scene is rich with imagery, moonlight paths, and the ghastly, ghostly form of what may or may not be Victor Pascal. When Lewis and Victor arrive at the pet cemetery, Victor warns Lewis of the dangers of breaking the barrier. Again, as I've said on earlier podcasts, King knows how to keep you coming back. Victor provides enough to tease the reader and fill him with a sense of dread without giving away too much information. This need to know causes you to turn the page. But still, he provides nuggets of information. There is more power here than you know, Victor says. It is old and always restless. Note that he emphasizes the pronoun. 
which serves as the prototype for the upcoming novel by the same name. Then Pascal refers to Lewis as friend, except that friend isn't the word that he uses. Lewis realizes that it's the closest translation to the word he actually used, a foreign word. Is this king just playing with dream logic here? Or is it evidence that it's an otherworldly being in the guise of Victor Pascal, whose grasp of humanity isn't perfect? The otherworldly being would be an agent of order to oppose the chaos he refers to as old and always restless. And the horror of it all is that he doesn't warn Lewis of Gage's impending death. That, it seems, is already a foregone conclusion. He only warns him what not to do after it happens. This half-hearted warning is even more evidence that this ghost is more than just the specter of Pascal, who would presumably have more compassion in his ghostly self to warn Lewis. If he knew enough to know what would happen, you'd think he'd warn the guy. But he gives him a warning, but not all warnings, makes me think that the thing posing as Victor Pascal has a grasp of humanity enough to want to help them, but not one strong enough to know that warning a parent about the impending death of a child might trump anything else. His realization the next morning that it wasn't a dream is the collision of his orderly world smashing up against the chaotic one. The pine needles, the dirty sheets in the bed, and the scratch on his arm are all examples of proof of his, of his nocturnal sojourn. And even after he comes face to face with the supernatural, and in the context of this argument, the chaotic, his rational mind attempts to provide order to it, believing the fear will pass like a kidney stone. He attempts to rationalize it, to make sense of it, trying to find a connection between Pascal and the pet cemetery. Of course, there is none, other than the force working against the force beyond the pet cemetery is using Pascal as a harbinger. When he can't find a suitable explanation, he makes one up. He convinces himself that he sleepwalked to the pet cemetery and analyzes the, con uh, the inclusion of Pascal as if he were Freud. When Norma has her heart attack, it's clear how meticulously plotted this novel is. Now, it isn't to say that King mapped out the events, but whether it was intentional or not, all of the parts of this machine work together. Norma's heart attack is necessary in the sense that it will be the leverage that Lewis needs to get done what he has to, and Judd, the man of his word that he is, will have to oblige. King knows that Lewis has to get the Micmac burial grounds and needs Judd to get him there, but knows that Judd would never bring him there on his own accord. Now, we've established what a loyal man he is, and if he gives, he's, he gives his word, he's bound to it. Norma's heart attack triggers Judd to pledge that he owes Lewis, which will be cashed in later in the novel. Um, when Church dies, Judd feels as though he owes it to Lewis. So when Judd takes him to the Micmac burial ground, King racks up the tension. The wind is cold and biting. The stars are so pure and cold they might as well be on an alien world, which for all intents and purposes, they are. One inhabited by dangerous creatures. King writes... They began to walk again, stepping from one broad hammock to the next. Lewis did not feel for them. His feet seemed to find them automatically with no effort from him. He slipped only once, his left shoe breaking through a thin scrum of ice and into the cold and somehow slimy standing water. He pulled it out quickly and went on, following Judd's bobbing light. That light, floating through the woods, brought back memories of the pirate tales he had liked to read as a boy. Evil men off to bury gold doubloons by the dark of the moon. And of course one of them would be tumbled into the pit on top of the chest, a bullet in his heart because the pirates had believed, or so the authors of these lurid tales solemnly attested, that the dead comrade's ghost would remain there to guard the swag. 
He did not hear any sounds like voices, nor did he see any St. Elmo's fire. But after stepping over half a dozen tussocks, he looked down and saw that his feet, calves, knees, and lower thighs had disappeared into a ground fog that was perfectly smooth, perfectly white, and perfectly opaque. It was like moving through the world's lightest drift of snow. The air seemed to have a quality of light in it now, and was warmer, he could have sworn it. He could see Judd before him, moving steadily along, the blunt end of his pick hooked over his shoulder. The pick enhanced the illusion of a man intent on burying treasure. That crazy sense of ex that crazy sense of exhilaration persisted, and he suddenly wondered if maybe Rachel was trying to call him. Back in the house, the phone was ringing and ringing, making its rational, prosaic sound. If he almost walked into Judd's back again. The old man had stopped in the middle of the path. His head was cocked to one side. His mouth was pursed and tense. Lewis hushed, looking around uneasily. Here the ground mist was thinner, but he still couldn't see his own shoes. Then he heard crackling underbrush and breaking branches. Something was moving out there. Something big. He cocked his mind, his head to one side in an unconscious imitation of Judd, unaware that he was doing it, and listened. The sound seemed at first distant, then very close, moving away and then moving ominously toward them. Lewis felt the sweat on his forehead begin to trickle down his chapped cheeks. He shifted the hefty bag with Church's body in it from one hand to the other. His palm had dampened, and the green plastic seemed greasy, wanting to slide through his fist. Now that thing out there seemed to be so close that Lewis expected to see its shape at any moment, rising up on two legs, perhaps blotting out the stars with some unthought of immense and shaggy body. Bear was no longer what he was thinking of. Now he didn't know just what he was thinking of. Then it moved away and disappeared. Then a shrill, maniacal laugh came out of the darkness, rising and falling in hysterical cycles, loud, piercing, chilling. To Lewis, it seemed that every joint in his body had frozen solid and that he had somehow gained weight, so much weight that if he turned to run, he would plunge down and out of sight into the swampy ground. The laughter rose, split into dry cackles like some rottenly friable chunk of rock, along with many fault lines. It reached the pitch of a scream, then sank into a guttural cackling that might have been sobs before it faded out altogether. I, I, I just these scenes. Um, there's one later on where where Lewis goes to the um, back to the McMack burial ground, and it's even more terrifying but just the, the the glimpses these half glimpses of of things in the woods in the fog they, they're just he does it so so well and then king reminds us that this is a story of death you know the universe above lewis is vast and cold it's filled with stars and what are stars but the ghosts of dead sons life continues for the family which sees the death of norma a healthy example of death and ends with the ominous kite flying in the sky the last happy memory of a father soon to lose his son. And that leads us to part two, the Micmac Burial Ground. The fears that have lurked in the backs of our minds are placed fully on display in the opening paragraphs of part two, the Micmac Burial Ground. It doesn't come as a surprise um, within the flow of the plot. Instead, King throws it out there like a slap in the face. Gage dies. It isn't the death itself that King chooses to focus on. In fact, it's the, de uh, the death itself is in a flashback. 
It's the immediate grief that follows and the grotesque absurdity of the process that comes with it, from Lewis picking out a casket to the repetitive platitudes in the waking line and the book signing during the wake. Now, look, although he's later revived by supernatural means, Gage's death comes about by a very real-world fear. Recently on the long-running sci-fi television series Doctor Who, a character died as a result of a car crash. Another character on the show used, uh, you know, used to time traveling, brink of death scenarios involving exploding planets, dinosaurs, robots, aliens, doesn't know how to react to the simple car crash because it's ordinary. And the same applies here. While there's a hand of fate, when it happens, there's no supernatural menace. There's no waterlogged hag lurching from the bathroom. There's no vampire bursting into your kitchen. There's no rabid dog hunting you down. It's the result of an everyday occurrence, walking across the street at the wrong time. There's no meaning to be had from it. There are no lessons to be learned from it. It's meaningless. The fact that as a child, it's awful. It's beyond tragic. There isn't really a word that can be used to connote the level of horror, despair, and existential dread that can take over someone who continues the loss of a loved one in this matter, especially a parent. You know, I have a friend who is a... Um, he works in a, a at a funeral home, and so I mean he's surrounded by by death um, all the time. And we recently went on a, a haunted house, um, you know, around right before Halloween. Um, and it was it was it was done very well. You know, you wait in line, and and the um, you know the experience is basically that the uh, the the owners of the place have refitted everything to make it look like a um, a research facility, right? So you get into an elevator, and then something goes wrong. You step out, and and you walk through different levels of this facility where all of the creatures have burst out um, and have completely overrun the place. And every level has its own theme, and it, you know it was good. It was done well, but we agreed later on that. Um, there was one part that was just unnecessary, and that was the, this this one section that involved, um, you know, dummies of of babies, um, in in different forms of experimentation and just dead. And that to me, it was too much um, because in life, and this is the conversation that he and I had had. I mean, in in life, we we have a a system. We we have built a grieving machine. It's not even a grieving machine. It's it's a it's an understanding of life, how we live it, and what death means to us. And and we've built this this system of mourning where we can understand when our parents and and those older than us pass away. We we grieve, we mourn, but it isn't fundamentally wrong it's not the net you know it's it's part of the natural order of things when someone however loses someone younger than themselves when a, a a parent loses a child in the natural order of things although death in of itself is a natural thing the fact that it is a child that is being lost in the natural order of things it's wrong so we we don't have a system to to really grasp that i mean there, there are structures in place for for those who have lost um, children, certainly, but in the natural order of things, we—it's just—it's it's unfathomable for us. So, in in the, the the walking through the haunted house when that happened, that to me, I I can handle, you know, dummies hanging on on meat hooks and 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 all that. That's fine. I think all of us can to a certain extent. But 
because of the the complete horror and unnatural aspect of the loss of a child or, or a younger loved one seeing the the the, the babies like that um to me it, it could have brought out a little bit too much emotion um or it could have hit a, re- a little bit too close to home for for people that have had to go through that you know and and so that was kind of fresh in my mind when when i was reading this um because of the horror of it all you know it's just it's it's awful anyway when lewis moves in on page 22 king writes lewis watched the movers take in boxes and dressers in the rooms and all the other things that they have collected over the 10 years of their marriage seeing them this way out of their custom places diminished them just a bunch of stuff in boxes and suddenly he felt sad and depressed it's a description that suggests that's up to us to provide meaning for our lives. Without us to do so, our artifacts, it's just a bunch of stuff in boxes. Our relationships are stories that we tell ourselves to make more um, out of the biological process of mating. And that the idea of the afterlife or the hand of a higher being is just a tale that we tell to ease us through a life where our children can be run over accidentally without purpose, reason, or meaning. Without the human perspective, our existence is just stuff in boxes. It's this type of thought process that can completely shatter a person. And the grips of such an existential loneliness, we can understand why Lewis does what he does. To undertake the decision of reanimating his son's body is to accept that there are forces at work beyond that which we can understand. The fact that these forces may be malevolent is irrelevant. The simple premise that such a force, one of supernatural origins, suggests that if that exists, then there must be some meaning, even if it's one he'll never fully understand. It's a desperate attempt to reach for an explanation, or a way in which he can take comfort. Not only will he get his son back, but his existential fears will be alleviated. The void that appeared from Gage's death will be filled with the understanding that while his death may have pointed to an objective universe, his resurrection will reveal a personal universe, one that provides for you, specifically to you, when you need it the most, as opposed to the one that takes at random. King provides a gut-wrenching scene necessary for his later decision to um, resurrect Gage. In it, he... um, he, being uh, Lewis, imagines Gage having survived the accident growing up, eventually becoming an Olympic swimmer. He needs to see the vision in order to rationalize bringing his son's body to the Micmac burial ground. It's doubly important due to the fact that's coming off the heels of Judd's own encounters with the living dead. His grief came for him fully, King writes. It came and dissolved him, unmanned him, took away whatever defenses remained. He put his face in his hands and cried, rocking back and forth on his bed, thinking he would do anything to have a second chance. Anything at all. Now, on a side note, uh, Lewis, during this vision that he has, um, he envisions Gage attending a camp named Camp Agawam. Now, for those of you who don't know, Agawam is a town located in western Massachusetts, named after the Indian tribe who populated the land. Um... Now, Western Mass is, for those of you who don't know, is nowhere near Boston. Um, It is uh, its own area free of any sort of Boston accent uh, that, 
you know, it, it stands in the shadow of the, the, the Berkshires. Um, it's not – when people think of Massachusetts, I think they, they tend to think of, of the, the eastern part of the state, not necessarily the western part of the state. Um, so for King to reference um, Agawam, which is just a, a small – not a small town, but it's just it's – um, it's a suburb outside of Springfield, which is the – I don't want to call it the Western capital of um, Western Mass, but uh, to me, outside of Six Flags New England, which existed only as a local amusement park named Riverside when the book was released, Agawam makes for an obscure reference. And I, I think that King included it simply for its connection to the Indian tribe, which makes me wonder if there were other references to Indian tribes um, sprinkled throughout the, the book. Now the forces of order start to work upon Ellie while chaos takes hold within Lewis. Lewis, even to the end, rationalizes the unbelievable, ultimately convincing himself of his actions. Committing to the insane while believing that it's normal is crazy and chaotic. Ellie is plagued by bad dreams and worse feelings, and while I finished the book, I wondered about her story. What did Ellie do next? Did she ever return to Ludlow? Did she ever try to find out what happened to her family? You know, what does a 2014 Ellie think and act like? What life has she lived? And if she did return to Ludlow, what state would it be in? The old timers are gone now. Who are left to tell the tales and the warnings of the Micmac burial ground? Anyway, the end of the novel comes like a runaway truck. King doesn't dwell too long on Ellie's fears. When describing her dream, Rachel puts the pieces together. This, with the, as King described it, viciously, I might add, pregnant feeling that something awful was about to burst, she calls Judd. And what a great description, by the way, a pregnant sensation in the same moments that a child will be reborn into the world. Now, as Rachel races home, Lewis uncovers Gage. It's a gruesome scene because it has to be. King goes into detail describing the decomposition and lifelessness of Gage's remains. Not an easy read, but King has to stress to us the fact that he's dead. He needs to show the unholy act that's about to take place. If Gage had been well put together, just asleep, then the next scenes wouldn't have the same impact. This, however, forces us to take a close look at the unnatural events about to occur. When Lewis makes his way through the woods, he steps out of our world and into another. And this is what I had talked about a little while ago um, when they were walking through the woods the first time. On page 362 is when he is going back into the woods to to bury Gage, um, and King really turns it up here, turns it into just a full-blown, um, full-blown horror, full-blown supernatural. The voice, if that's what it was, came again, this time from the left. Moments later, it came from behind him, from directly behind him, it seemed as if he could have turned and seen some blood-drenched thing less than a foot from his back, all bared teeth and glittering eyes. But this time Lewis did not slow. He looked straight ahead and kept walking. Suddenly the mist lost its light, and Lewis realized that a face was hanging in the air ahead of him, leering and gibbering, its eyes tilted up like the, the eyes in a classical Chinese painting were a rich yellowish-gray, sunken, gleaming. The mouth was drawn down in a rictus. The lower lip was turned out, revealing teeth stained blackish-brown and worn down almost to nubs. 
But what struck Lewis were the ears, which were not ears at all, but curving horns. They were not like the devil's horns. They were like ram's horns. This grisly, floating head seemed to be speaking, laughing. Its mouth moved, although that turned-down lower lip never came back to its natural shape and place. Veins in there pulsed black. Its nostrils flared, as if with breath and life, and blew out white vapors. As Lewis drew closer, the floating head's tongue lolled out. It was long and pointed, dirty yellow in color. It was coated with peeling scales, and as Lewis watched, one of these flipped up and over like a manhole cover, and a white worm oozed out. The tongue's tip skittered lazily on the air somewhere below where its Adam apple should have been. It was laughing. And if that wasn't horrifying enough, uh, he continues... Something was coming. Lewis came to a total halt, listening to that sound, that approaching sound. His mouth fell open, every tendon that held his jaw shut simply giving up. It was a sound like nothing he had ever heard in his life. A living sound, a big sound. Somewhere nearby, growing closer, branches were snapping off. There was a crackle of underbrush breaking under unimaginable feet. The jelly-like ground under Lewis's feet began to shake in sympathetic vibration. He became aware that he was moaning, and once more clutching Gage to his chest, he became aware that the peepers and frogs had fallen silent. He became aware that the wet, damp air had taken on an eldritch, sickening smell like warm, spoiled pork. Whatever it was, it was huge. Lewis's wondering, terrified face tilted up and up like a man following the trajectory of a launched rocket. The thing thudded toward him, and there was the ratcheting sound of a tree, not a branch, but a whole tree, falling over somewhere close by. Lewis saw something. The mist stained to a dull slate gray for a moment, but this diffuse, ill-defined watermark was better than sixty feet high. It was no shade, no insubstantial ghost. He could feel the displaced air of its passage, could hear the mammoth thud of its feet coming down, the suck of mud as it moved on. For a moment, he believed that he saw twin yellow-orange sparks high above him, sparks like eyes. Now, I'm, uh, I'm going to review the movie next week, but with the... Exp um with the exception of a, a couple minor changes, uh, the, the two versions are nearly identical. What the movie failed to capture, however, was the otherworldliness of this particular scene, which includes otherworldly fauna, glowing mist, laughing spirits, and, and that Wendigo. And that brings us to part three, Oz, the Gwait and Tailable. When Gage returns, he doesn't come as a zombie, but more like you would expect of someone possessed. He's foul-mouthed, taunting, and vulgar. He toys with Judd just before he kills him. Um, and that's that's a death that, that's hard, because we just love Judd so much. At least I do. I think that everyone does. So we, yes, we love Judd. And it's clear that the boy's body has been possessed by whatever ancient force has existed in those woods, whether it's the Wendigo, the force of chaos, or death itself, charmingly referred to in the book as Oz, the Great and Tewabo. A dark god, the one in which the little god swamped was named after. The thing even changes Gage's shape when Lewis overpowers the body. It's clear that this is something that has slipped inside the vessel and it's grown bolder, more powerful than it had been when it possessed Timmy Baderman half a century ago. Now by this point, Lewis is insane. 
but he's promoted to an all-new level of crazy at the sight of his dead wife. The Wendigo has its claws deep into his soul, um, and it convinces his shattered mind to carry her back to the Micmac burial ground. And um, then Steve Masters shows up, uh, and with Steve, Lewis is able to explain his reasoning. With Steve Masterson, we see exactly the horror and insanity of this scene, and it was a real wise decision on King's part. Seeing Lewis through another character's eyes highlights the horror of it all, and ultimately, um, Steve becomes a Lovecraft protagonist. Because what happens here is that Steve brushes up against something he'll never fully comprehend, something that wakes him up at night screaming. And then Lewis continues to, to go back to the Micmac burial ground and then um, buries Rachel and is famously visited by um, her resurrected corpse um, in the kitchen as the book ends. Uh so now we've gotten to the point. Well, that's the book, and and so now we we've gotten to the point where I um I'm going to I'm going to do the Kingisms first, then I'm going to get to the quote, share a couple thoughts, and then and then we'll be done. Um, so I don't want to take too much more time because we're almost at an hour now, um, and I have quite a few Kingisms. So uh, the first the first Kingism uh, is characters roaring in laughter. Uh, Judd pulls out a bee stinger and states, no prize winner, but it do for a ribbon, to which Lewis bursts out laughing. Even better, on page 33, Norma was taken with both of the Creed children, especially with Ellie, who she said was going to be an old-time beauty. At least Lewis told Rachel that night in bed Norma hadn't said Ellie was going to grow into a real sweet coon. Rachel laughed so hard she broke explosive wind, and then both of them laughed so long and loudly that they woke up Gage in the next room. So there you go. I think that that's topped it all. Someone says something so funny, the other one farts in response. Second kingism is the parentheses that interrupt the narrative, revealing a character's thought. It happens throughout the book um, quite a few times. It's one of King's go-to techniques. Number three is the catchphrase. It's the famous line. It's the uh, important repeated line. And we have a couple here. Uh, you know, we've seen it with um, Christine, uh, with Arnie repeating uh, LeBay's term of affection, which is shitters. Um, we're going to see it again in It with uh, Beep Beep Richie. Uh, we saw it in The Shining with Take Your Medicine. And here we have the soil of a man's heart is stonier, as well as hey ho, let's go, and the repetition of Oz the Great and Terrible. Number four is um, at one point King references a fetus absorbing its twin in utero. So, like I said here, it's just a reference, but it's almost as if he, it's something that he had known about, and he referred to it here and said, hmm. That would be a really interesting idea for a story. I wonder what I could do with that. And so the seed that he plants here will later grow into the dark half. Number five is town secrets exposed publicly by a villain, right? So here it's uh, in Judd's tale of Timmy Baderman, the returned, uh, the returned corpse, um, spills the beans on the town's leaders to rattle them much in the same way that Andre Linoge does in Storm of the Century. 
Number six uh, is the the reference to a supernatural entity as it. Um, Judd stresses Timmy Baderman as it. Number seven is cyclical evil. Judd worries that the Micmac burial ground's power waxes and wanes, an evil force whose power resurfaces over time, not unlike it. So as you can see, if you look at the Kingisms um, over the podcasts that I've done, I reference it a lot, not necessarily because it's my favorite, but because I do believe that this is that the, the novel represents a crescendo for Stephen King, um, that everything that he has done has been some sort of rough draft, and that's the, the, like the, final, the final copy that, that, that he, he, he puts out. Uh, number eight, spoiler. Spoiler, spoiler for a recent novel. Um, spoiler for a recent novel. If you have not read Stephen King's last couple books, I would not listen to this next spoiler as it spoils, hence the word spoiler, the events towards the end of the novel. So if you are going to continue to listen to this, please bear in mind that it is a spoiler for a recent Stephen King novel. And the Kingism in of itself is the resurrection of the dead. Um that just happened in Revival, um, which during my review of Revival, you you might know that I, if you had listened to it, you know that I, I talked about Pet Cemetery a lot. Um, and it's just interesting because those two novels to me, they're, they're like twinners. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 the character is resurrected from the dead in this book. It's resurrected from the dead in Revival, and we'll see resurrections again. Um, sometimes they come back. We see a resurrection in... Um, of sorts in uh, Christine um, in The Gunslinger so it's definitely something that he plays with number nine is the ancient evil power in the land um, it's seen here in the Micmac burial ground and the, and the descriptions of the Micmac burial ground and how everything is wrong it reminded me of the short story N which is an incredibly effective short story um, number 10 is a grave digging scene um, as seen before in Salem's Lot um, number 11, I'm going to actually read, um, a portion of the text from number 11, which, um, can be found on page 344. And I almost made this the, uh, the, the quote, um, or the most important text, um, for this particular, uh, podcast episode. And the, the Kingism is the death as part of not not part of but like the, the the a drainage ditch representing um death so he writes um this time he moved away from the gate walking along the wrought iron fence until it turned away from mason street at a neat right angle there was a drainage ditch here and lewis looked into it what he saw made him shudder there were masses of rotting flowers here, layer upon layer of them, washed down by seasons of rain and snow. No, not Christ. These leavings were made um, to a much older God than the Christian one. People have called him different things at different times, but Rachel's sister gave him a perfectly good name, I think. Oz the Great and Tewable, God of dead things left in the ground. God of rotting flowers in drainage ditches. God of the mystery. So that to me, it's uh, yeah. I mean, that, I I just feel like Oz the Great and Terrible, uh, the 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 horrible. I mean, it's just it's it's the chaos that I had referenced. It's the dark god that that just hovers in between every page here. 
Which brings us to number 12 for the Stephen Kingism, which is a giant hiding behind the mist. Um, the description of the Wendigo um, being so tall that, he, that that Lewis can't even really fathom how big it is. It's very similar to some descriptions found within the mist, um, which will be a short story coming up very, very soon. Uh, because between here and the mist, we have Cycle of the Werewolf, which is just... it's. I, I, I have a hard time even calling it a Stephen King novel to me. The When I think of Cycle of the Werewolf, I think of Bernie Wrightson, the illustrator. Then we have The Talisman, which I can't wait to sink into, by the way. And then we have um, uh, Skeleton Crew, uh, which contains The Mist. Um, so I can I, I think that this, this type of description is leading somewhere. You can start to see organically where his thoughts go. And then now I want to talk about the connections to Stephen King works. All right. So first up, I just want to say nerd alert. All right. I'm going to go for a deep dive on this one. Here we go. Judd mentions Cujo. All right. Which means that the events in that novel occurred, which means that the events of the dead zone occurred. And likewise, the events of the body, apt pupil and Shawshank Redemption. King sometimes references his works as works of fiction within his narrative, and other times they're all part of a shared universe. Here, with the mention of Cujo, we can infer that because the events of Cujo take place, then the events of the Dead Zone take place, as the Dead Zone was the story from which Cujo sprung into life. In the Dead Zone, King referenced a town named Jerusalem's Lot, and so does here. Because he doesn't reference the strange fact that the town disappears, throws into question or not, um... Because he doesn't reference the strange fact that the town disappears, throws into question whether or not this takes place in the same universe as the novel Salem's Lot. With me? To complicate things, in this story, The Body, King also references Cujo as events that will occur later in Castle Rock, meaning that if Pet Cemetery takes place within the same universe as Cujo, then it also takes place in the same universe as The Body, and therefore Needful Things, due to the fact that a major character from The Body reappears in Needful Things. The complication occurs when you take into account the reference to Chamberlain, Maine in The Body. Chamberlain was Carrie White's hometown. I, I'm sorry, guys. My dog is having puppy dreams and snoring badly back here. Anyway, um, the complication occurs when you take into account the reference to Chamberlain, Maine in The Body. Chamberlain was Carrie White's hometown. This suggests that these stories all take place in a shared universe. But if Pet Cemetery takes place in a universe where Chamberlain is a town as referenced in the body, follow me, okay? If Pet Cemetery takes place in a universe where Chamberlain is a town as referenced in the body, it also takes place in the same universe as the Dead Zone, in which Chamberlain was a fictional town in a book slash movie entitled Carrie. Okay? The simplest explanation here is one that springs out of the Dark Tower. As Jake Chambers will tell you, there are other worlds than these. Meaning that there are multiple versions of multiple worlds, so many of the stories can share geographies while explaining contradictions that the one mentioned earlier through alternate but very similar worlds. I also want to point out that the inclusion of some of these stories also suggests the inclusion of others, such as with Castle Rock, the Dark Half, Bag of Bones, and with the body that references Derry, it. Um, and then also with, with Derry, we have Dreamcatcher, Insomnia, um, we have 112263, 
And with the inclusion of insomnia, it opens it up to the world of the Dark Tower, the Talisman, Black House, and Rose Matter. While on the subject of insomnia, Gage Creed is referenced uh, within those pages as the villain Atropos, one of the three fates from Greek mythology, is responsible for Gage's death. In his secret lair under an old tree, he keeps a collection of items belonging to his victims, um, touchstones for him, but everyday objects for others that go missing in the days before that person's death. I always think of Atropos when I can't find a sock or an article of clothing, wondering if he's snipped my balloon. Anyway, in his lair, we find a sneaker that once belonged to Gage. On the way to the Micmac burial ground to Barry Church, Lewis realizes that the air feels different, electric, charged. I wonder if he's feeling the sensation of a thinny, where the space between worlds is thin, first seen in the Dark Tower series explicitly, but possibly retroactively applicable to a number of King's works, including Salem's Lot, The Shining, and then later on, 1122-63, Bag of Bones, The Mist, N, Room 1408, and others. In fact, the area beyond the barrier is filled with creatures that we never truly see, but that get the sensations of and hear intelligent creatures that laugh at you from the dark. It isn't unlike the mist when the creatures in the fog pour out of a hole in between worlds. I'm sure that the same thing happened here a long time ago. So now we come to the part of the podcast where I, I go into the text and I find the, um, the, the piece of writing that I think uh, is the most important text that, that speaks to what Stephen King is, is doing with this particular work. And this was a difficult one because this is an, this is an entire uh, dissertation on, on death. Um, so there are a lot of examples. Uh, I think the first one here is, is still a very, very powerful one. It's when Lewis and Judd are talking and, and Judd is, is talking just basically about the, the generations and how they handle death differently. And Judd says... It's not such a bad idea to be on nodding acquaintance with it. These days, I don't know. No one wants to talk about it or think about it, it seems. They took it off the TV because they thought it might hurt the children some way, hurt their minds, and people want closed coffins so they don't have to look at the remains or say goodbye. It just seems like people want to forget it. We was on closer terms with death. We saw the flu epidemic after the Great War, and mothers dying with child, and children dying of infection, and fevers that it seemed like doctors just wave a magic wand over these days. In a time when me and Norma was young, if you got cancer, why, that was your death warrant right there. No radiation treatments back in the 1920s. Two wars, murders, suicides. We knew it as a friend and as an enemy. My brother Pete died of a burst appendix in 1912, back when Taft was president. Pete was just 14, and he could hit a baseball farther than any kid in town. In those days, he didn't need to take a course in college to study death, hot spice or whatever they call it. In those days, it came into the house and said howdy, and sometimes it took supper with you, and sometimes you could feel it bite your ass. So that to me, so I'll just, I'll leave it at that. Um, th that to me is what the, the novel is all about. Um, you know, and, and Judd had it not been for the Micmac burial ground and his involvement with it, I think that he would have a really strong, healthy grasp of death, but the other characters don't. And granted, a lot of the other characters have to go through some great tragedies in the novel, so who, who am I to judge? But I think that man's relationship with death 
is is what this novel is all about. Now, with that said, I think that that's the most important, but it's definitely not the most famous because on page 166, um, again, Judd is talking and um, they're, they're, they're referencing Ellie having an issue with death now. And then Judd says, talking about going to the pet cemetery, he says, maybe I did it because kids need to know that sometimes dead is better. Um, and as Stephen Kingisms go, uh, in, in the land of the catchphrase, dead is better is, is one of his most famous phrases along with they're all going to laugh at you. Uh, and here's Johnny and, um, they all float down here. They all float, but dead is better might be my personal favorite. So Anyway, guys, it's uh, about an hour and 10 minutes at this point. Stick around next week as I review the um, the film adaptation of Pet Cemetery, And then uh, after that, we'll move on to, I believe, Cycle the Werewolf is next. And then Talisman, which I can't wait to get into. And then uh, Skeleton Crew. So we've got some good stuff coming up. Um, in the meantime, uh, please feel free to write in your thoughts. I haven't gotten... Um, uh, as many emails as I was getting, so I uh, don't really have too many to share, but I would like for you to um, send in any thoughts that you might have to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And again, everyone that's following on Instagram, thank you so much, and everyone following on Twitter. You know, the, these are some interactions that uh, I'm really enjoying. So, uh, you know, if you haven't done so, you can feel free to, you know, uh, reach out to me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, and Facebook. And like I said, uh, StephenKingCastYahoo.com. Uh, and feel free to like the page uh, and give it a review if you have time on iTunes. Um, so, everyone, have a fantastic week. And like I said, I will see you here. Next week at this time, same King time, same King channel, Stephen King cast. Someone.